Today I'm speaking with Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval has a PhD in history from Oxford University, and he's a tenured professor in the Department of History at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He specialized in world history and medieval history and military history, but his current research focuses on macro-historical questions. For instance, what is the relationship between history and biology? What is the essential difference between human beings and other animals? Is there justice in history? Does history have a direction? Did people become happier as history has unfolded? These are all fascinating questions. Our time was somewhat limited by Yuval's schedule. Our love for Skype was somewhat unrequited. He was back in Israel at the time of this interview. But I think you'll find our conversation very interesting. And now I bring you Yuval Harari. I am here with Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You have really uh, just exploded onto the scene here with two wonderful books, Sapiens being the first and uh, Homo Deus, which just came out in the U.S. Congratulations. These are really fantastic, beautiful, exciting books. Thank you. Your background's in history, however. You're, you're a historian technically, but you've written two very interdisciplinary books. You get into anthropology and biology and technology to an unusual degree. And I, I'm very fond of this kind of crossing of boundaries intellectually, being a fan of the concept of the unity of knowledge. Did you always know you wanted to work this way when you, you went into history? Was that your intention or is this just something that has happened kind of late in the game for you? I, I always wanted to do it, but for many years it seemed uh, impossible. Uh, it's really only after I got my tenure at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem that I also got the, the courage or the opportunity to let go of the publish or perish regime mm. and do what I really wanted to do, which was to pursue the big questions of history, the big questions of, of life. And as you said, I mean, reality is one. If you want to get, to get answers to the really big questions, you cannot remain confined within a single discipline because reality isn't confined to a single discipline. Yeah, I often say that the single disciplines are now defined more by university architecture and budgets than anything else. And to remain siloed in one way of thinking about reality, in part, it's an understandable outcome based on everyone's limitations on time and bandwidth and, and the impossibility of knowing everything about everything. So people do specialize, but really the, the boundaries between philosophy and science and specific disciplines within science and anthropology and sociology and psychology and history, I mean, it's just the facts of the cosmos don't obey these boundaries. So it's great to just see someone run directly over them. I mean, if you start like, with a question that for me is one of the most central questions of history, whether humans today are happier than in the Stone Age, and whether we know how to translate power into happiness, then, I mean, what discipline does this question belong to? It's, you know, it's history, it's philosophy, it's biology, it's everything. Yeah, yeah. So I want to jump into the books, in particular, your latest. But before I do, it's very rare that I get someone on the podcast who is also seriously committed to the practice of meditation and has a lot of experience there. So I, I just want to, this is a very novel thing. Okay. You came off of 
a, I believe, a 60-day silent retreat recently. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, that's something you do every year. How did you get into meditation and what does your background look like there? Well, I, when I did my PhD in Oxford um, 17 years ago, I went to a Vipassana retreat and I learned uh, Vipassana meditation from a teacher called S.N. Goenka. And um, it completely blew my mind and, and changed my life. And ever since that first course, I, I do two hours of Vipassana meditation every day. I usually mm. start my workday with one hour of meditation and I finish it with another hour of meditation. And every year, like my yearly vacation is to go for a long retreat of between 30 and 60 days of just meditation in complete silence, no no emails, no computers, no books, no reading, writing, nothing, just just meditating. Oh, that's wonderful. I am envious. Do you have kids? Uh, no, just dogs. Uh, <laughs> explains a lot. That explains your freedom. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. So just to give people a clearer picture of what you're up to there. So Goenka is a very famous Vipassana teacher. There, there are two strands of Vipassana that have been very influential particularly in the West, among all the, the Westerners who in, in the 60s discovered this practice. And they both come out of Burma, and Goenka's is one line coming from a teacher named Uba Kin, and there was another line that came from a teacher named Mahasi Sayadaw. And so all of the Vipassana practice I've done on retreat has come from the, the Mahasi Sayadaw line, which teaches the same kind of mindfulness, but it's a different sort of practice. I mean, I think the technical details are, are less important. The key is just to observe reality as it is every moment, just to stay focused what is really happening right now as against all the stories and explanations that, that our mind constantly generates. And this is extremely difficult. Uh, what struck me in my first course, I remember the, like the first day I came to the retreat, I was absolutely um, amazed by it. That they, It starts with a very simple practice, sounds simple anyway, of you just have to focus your attention on the breath and uh, observe when the breath is coming in and when the breath is going out of your nostrils. That's it. You don't have to do anything. Just, just ob ob observe that. And I couldn't do it for more than like five seconds or 10 seconds. And my mind would run away somewhere. Yeah. And you know, I was 24 at the time. And it was the first time I realized how little I understand my mind, how little control I have over my attention. And this is why they start with this very simple practice. Just focus on the breath because it's so difficult. And once you get the hang of that and you can do it for more than 10 seconds, then yes, the, 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 the idea or the instruction is to start observing not just the breath, but everything that is happening in the body, um, sensations throughout the body. In every part of the body, there is some sensation at, at any moment. And um, you start observing that and you see the deep connection between these sensations and what's happening in your mind, that we think that we react to events in the outside world, to memories from our childhood, to something we saw on television. But in fact, in each and every moment, we constantly react to the sensations within our body. 
And, and everything people do, as a historian, I can say that everything people do, you know, from fidgeting in your chair to starting a world war, um, you're actually reacting to sensations in your body. It's amazing how out of control our minds are and how few people realize that their minds are out of control. And, and the consequences of, their, of them being out of control are, as you say, these are the same process that, that gets you to say something untoward in a personal interaction is the very process that brings us, you know, civilizational scale catastrophes, wars and all the rest. People are being moved by their thoughts in every moment and they see no alternative. And meditation is, for the most part, the one way people can become more aware of these processes that rule their lives. Had you had any psychedelic experiences or anything that got you to go on that first retreat, or how did you find yourself there? No, I had a very good friend. He's still a good friend of mine. He now works in Silicon Valley. And he, for an entire year, kept like nudging me, you should go to a retreat. And he was very persistent. And um, I was at a time in life that I had all these big questions, and I had no answers. And I was very disappointed with the university, with the uh, academic world, with, um, uh, with my studies, because they didn't provide me any answers to the really deep questions of, um, you know, the, the, the suffering in the world and the suffering in my life. Where is it coming from and what can we do about it? And he kept telling me, you know, you should go to a meditation retreat. Maybe it will show you something. And, and I just kept reading books and uh, reading articles, and I was convinced that the answer will come from there until I reached a, a certain degree of desperation. And I said, okay, what can I lose from going to this 10 days meditation retreat? And I, I never looked back since. Mm. And have you done any psychedelics since, or is that something that you haven't experienced? As a student, I, I did, uh, what was it, um, ecstasy, but. Um, it's, you know, it was an interesting experience, but it didn't teach me anything really <laughs> valuable. And later on, I, I realized, I mean, the really, I think, the dangerous, the dangerous potential of all the psychedelic drugs is that people get hooked on the excitement and that they want special experiences. Yeah. And this is also dangerous sometimes in meditation that people come to a meditation retreat and they want something special. They want to experience, I don't know, bliss and, and to fly in the air and to see stars and whatever. And then you come to the retreat, at least in Vipassana, and they tell you, okay, observe your breath. And then you have a pain in your back and they say, oh, good, you have pain, observe the pain. Look, look just for once in your life, instead of reacting to the pain, just see how does pain feel? Or oh, maybe it's very hot. And they tell you, okay, observe the heat. How does it feel? How does the heat feel? Or how does boredom feel? And people say, I don't want to observe boredom or pain. I want these special, wonderful experiences. And it's the same with psychedelic drugs. I think that the, they, they can open your mind to some levels of reality, which are usually hidden from us. But the danger is that uh, people just want the next trip and the next special experience. And in the, in the end, I think, the real key is to understand the normal everyday experiences 
and not the unique once in the in, once in a lifetime special experience. Because if you want to deal with your anger or boredom or irritation or anything, then you need to observe your anger. And, um, and it's very difficult if you're just pursuing special special experiences. Yeah, that's a very important point, and I fully agree with it. The illusion that gets introduced when you're using psychedelics in that way to have more peak experiences, as you say, you can use meditation that way where you, the moment you feel a little bliss or rapture or some very positive, unusual mental state, you can take that to be the signature of a successful meditation. And the illusion that creeps in there, which is of a piece with everyone's efforts to seek happiness throughout their lives, is that experience has to change in order for the most profound things about the human mind or human consciousness can be discovered. Profundity is elsewhere, which is, in fact, not the case. I mean, if the ego is an illusion, as it turns out it is, you can discover that coincident with the most ordinary moments of consciousness. You don't need the full fireworks show of a psychedelic experience to notice that there's a subject-object illusion that can be penetrated. And that's something that you do get with a very systematic approach to mindfulness meditation in this mm -hmm. case. It's wonderful you're doing that. Has meditation affected the way you approach your work? I believe I detect the, the influence in, in many of the things you've written, but how do, how do you view that? Yes, it has a very deep influence, both on, on my ability um, to research and to write such books, because especially when you deal with something like the history of the world in one book, the one thing you need above all else is the ability to focus. Uh, what's really important and how not to get bogged down in the thousand little details and, and you know, all the kings and battles and dates and all that. And the practice of meditation, I think, gave me this ability to remain focused. And without that, I, I couldn't have written Sapiens or, or Homo Deus. And on, on another level, um, at least Vipassana is really about observing reality as it is and being able to distinguish between what is real and what is just a story or a fantasy created by our own minds. And this had a very deep impact on my interpretation of history. Uh, because also when I look at history, for me, the big question is what is real and what are fictions created by human beings? And at least my understanding is that the source of human power, but also the source of so much human misery, is um, the human imagination and the ability of humans to create fictional stories and then to believe them to such an extent that they can start entire wars just because they believe some religious or national or economic fiction. Mm. And um, this is really what gave us control of the planet. We control this planet not because as individuals we are much more intelligent than chimpanzees or pigs or dogs, but rather because we are the only mammal that can cooperate in very large numbers. And we can do that because we believe in fictions. If you examine any large-scale human cooperation, you always find a fictional story at the, at the basis, whether it's about God 
or the nation or money or even human rights. Uh, human rights, like God in heaven, they are just a story invented by humans. They are not a biological reality. And um, this is, again, the source of, of our power and also of many of our calamities. You can never convince a group of chimpanzees to attack the neighboring group by promising them that after they die, if they die for the great chimpanzee god or the great chimpanzee nation, then after they die, they will go to chimpanzee heaven and there receive lots of bananas and virgin chimpanzees and, and things like that. No chimpanzee will ever, ever believe such a story. Uh, and this is why we control the world and not the chimpanzees. I love this basic picture, but I, I must admit I've had a few problems with some of your terminology here because you you use words like religion and fiction and stories fairly loosely. So you say things like, yeah. you know, science depends on religion and humanism is a religion and, you know, all, as you just said, all large-scale human cooperation is based on fiction. But it seems to me that there are fictions and then there are fictions. And, and I think we still want to differentiate between stories and concepts that are obviously false, right, and therefore spread confusion by definition, and those that one need not be confused to adopt. So, you know, the U.S. Constitution or the concept of human rights or the convention of money, these are, are not fictions in the same way that the concept of paradise or martyrdom or the Holy Spirit are fictions. And I mean, I don't have to be confused about the nature of reality to see the benefit of thinking in terms of human rights or to use money. Do you disagree with that or, or are we on the same no, page there? I, I definitely agree that not all stories are the same and some stories are, are much more beneficial than other stories. And also they demand a kind of different kind maybe of belief. But what happens is even if you start by a convention like money, that yes, everybody knows that uh, these pieces of paper have no value and it's just an agreement between people that uh, invest them with a certain value. Very soon what happens is um, that people forget that or ignore that. And if you open a suitcase full of $100 bills, and you look at the brain of the person mm. who is looking at that, at that pile of money, you see like all the neurons going crazy. And the person sees the money as something really valuable. Now, if you start talking with him and, you know, you have a long philosophical discussion, then yes, in the end, maybe he will agree that, ah, actually, it's just a convention. But the immediate experience of the person looking at the pile of money is, you know, immense greed and even a willingness to kill for it. And uh, it's the same, you know, with corporations. If you tell somebody that, you know, Google is just a story or uh, uh, General Motors is just a story, then yes, if you sit for a long philosophical discussion or legal discussion, they will understand what you mean. But in most cases, in everyday experience, we treat these entities as if they are completely real. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out that we can get locked in to these conventions in ways that create an immense amount of needless suffering. And you must know Alan Watts, the great popularizer of Eastern philosophy from the, the 60s yeah. and 70s. He told a, an amusing story. I'm sure he told this a hundred times, but he, when he's talking about the Great Depression, 
in this vein and talking about the, the concept of money, he pointed out that money is an abstraction, kind of like an inch, right, or any unit of measurement. And so the way our economy fell into the, the abyss after the Great Depression was, to some degree, a matter of our not being able to free ourselves from this convention. And, and so he talked about, you know, what happened in the Great Depression was like a construction worker showing up on the job and the foreman says, sorry, no more work today. We've run out of inches, right? And the idea of running out of money when there's still houses to be built and still people who want them and there was no less work to be done, but we couldn't coordinate our work given what had happened to the economy. These abstractions obviously have enormous power. Yeah, and also I would say that if you would talk with, uh, you know, like a theologian, then he will tell you, well, I also, we, we also know that God is not this old man, old angry man in the sky that gets upset if you, if, if, I don't know, if, if you don't uh, follow his orders. God is, is, is love, God is whatever. And he will come up with some very abstract and maybe convincing story about what God is. And when you hear this story of the theologian, you will say, well, actually, maybe I was too fast to condemn religion. But as a historian, I would tell you, yes, uh, the theologian's God, uh, this, is, this is maybe kind of a nice, uh, um, not nice, but th this idea has some sense in it. But this is not the God of history. This is not the God that launched the Crusades and the Jihads and all the religious wars and persecutions and, and so forth. There is a huge gap between the God of the theologians and the God of the masses. And it's for his, from a historical perspective, it's the God of the masses that really counts. It's the angry man in the sky. And it's the same with, with money. Yes, if, if, if we have this deep conversation, then we all agree that money is just an abstraction created by humans and so forth. But uh, I don't know, if you're, if you're in the middle of a warfare between two, two gangs or between two corporations, then everybody's dead serious that these pieces of paper or these electronic data on the computer, this is the most important thing in the world. Mm. So what is the internet doing to us now in affecting the power or lack of power of the stories we use to organize our lives? How do you view our current moment with respect to creating stories that will allow for the emergence of a viable global civilization or you know truly open societies that are durable what's your sense of the present well there are two questions there one about the internet and, and the other about a, a global society and they are not they're, i think they're very different questions let's hold globalism i want to talk about globalism and its precarious birth later on so let's let's just talk about technology and its implications at the moment well, technology makes our stories and fantasies more important than ever before because it makes them more powerful than ever before. You know, if people in ancient Egypt wanted to live forever, they just couldn't. They didn't have the technology, so they fantasized. And it had, and their fantasies had a lot of impact on the economy because they, they used all the, all the resources to build these huge pyramids. And it had an impact. On, on culture and on politics, but the impact was, was limited. Now, when people fantasize about immortality, they are starting to have the technology to actually do it. 
Uh, I don't think it will be feasible in, say, 20 years. But given 50 years, 100 years, um, I don't think that overcoming old age and death is, is impossible. And then whatever we fantasize on, whatever our dreams, whatever stories we believe, it becomes the most powerful force in the world. Uh, the very future of evolution, of life, will be shaped by human fiction. By, I mean, by human fiction, I mean the stories in which we believe. Yeah, uh, yeah. Science and technology will give us the power to realize whatever fiction we, we, we believe in. And then the question, what is your favorite fiction, will become maybe the most important question in, in the evolution of life. What we are seeing or what we will see in the not so distant future is exactly the collapse of the separation between fiction and reality. Because things that begin as fiction in, 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 humans, in the human mind, we will have the technology to make them a reality and then they are no longer fiction. Yeah. Uh, you could uh, create your favorite heaven or hell, maybe, uh, using bioengineering and using uh, brain-computer interfaces and virtual reality technology and, and things like that. Do you think in terms of optimism and pessimism here, or are you just describing the world as you see it and, and not tipping in one, one direction or another with respect to your hope or fear about what's happening? I try not to think in terms of optimism and pessimism because it then, you know, colors your, your, your lenses and makes it more difficult to just see what, what is happening. I also think as a historian that um, history is not deterministic and technology is not deterministic. You could use the same technology uh, for very good purposes or for very bad purposes. If you look at the 20th century, then you see that with the same technology of electricity and cars and radio and all that, people could create communist dictatorships or fascist regimes or liberal democracies. The electricity didn't tell people what to do with it. Mm. And it's the same with biotechnology and artificial intelligence. Uh, we still have options. And just to give one example, uh, which is close to, to my heart, uh, because I, I'm very much concerned about what we are doing to other animals and especially farm animals. And um, I think that the biotechnology poses both the greatest threat and the greatest promise to farm animals, depending on what we choose to do with it. You could use biotechnology to start engineering cows and pigs and chickens that grow faster and have more meat and give more milk and whatever serving the interests of the industry while completely disregarding what this means in terms of the experience and the misery of, of the animals. On the other hand, you could use biotechnology to start uh, what is known as cellular agriculture yeah. or, or create uh, cultured meat or clean meat, which is meat grown from cells. If you want a steak, you don't need to raise a cow and kill it and have a steak, you can just grow the steak from cells. I actually had Uma Valetti, the, the CEO of Memphis Meats, on the podcast about a year ago, and, oh. and, that, and that was the topic. I'm very excited about this truly ethically pure approach to growing meat, I mean, just the no animal involved. 
uh, it'd be a wonderful breakthrough. Yeah, so so this is a good example that the same the same field. Of course, it's not exactly the same technology, but the same field, depending on how we choose to use it, can be an immense blessing and, and can be a terrible curse. So I try to focus um, just on understanding what are the possibilities. And also, I, I try not to make uh, prophecies and forecasts. I don't think anybody really knows how the world mm. would look like in 2015. I really just try to map the different possibilities. So to take a, a very local case that is in the news, the news itself is in the news, really. So the, the, the issue of fake news seems to me has direct relevance to this, the influence of stories. How do you view this recent phenomenon of fake news? Is it, is it at all new or is this, have we been dealing with fake news for thousands of years? I, I, I still don't understand what's new about it. I mean, it's a very troubling phenomenon for sure, but I don't think there is anything new. Um, I mean, if this is the era of post-truth, then I would like to know when was the era of truth. Mm. I mean, was it, you know, the 1950s, the 1930s, the, the Middle Ages? I don't think there is anything that Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels didn't know about propaganda and fake news and manipulating the public. And um, going much further back, um, you know, fake news are thousands of years old. You just need to think of the Bible. And mm. the Bible is also a, a disconcerting uh, example that fake news can last forever. Yeah. It's not get exposed after, you know, a month or a year. They can last for thousands of years. That's a great meme. Fake news can last forever. <laughs> Let's get T-shirts printed. <laughs> so... One thing that's very interesting in your latest book, again, on this, on the implications of technology, you speculate about the likely birth of new religions inspired by technology. Say a little more about that. Uh, yes, I think that there is a good chance that Silicon Valley and places like it will create not just gadgets and tools, but ideological systems and even religions that will make many of the traditional promises of religion, uh, promising, you know, justice and prosperity and even immortality, but here on earth with the help of technology and not after you die with the help of supernatural beings. And you can say that we have actually seen at least some uh, techno-religions, religions based on technology, uh, previously, maybe the best example is, is socialism and communism. Communism promised to create paradise on earth with the help of the technology of the Industrial Revolution. And now, it didn't work very well, but this was the basic idea. We don't need uh, God. We just need to control the means of production. And the engineers and the technicians they can create paradise on earth for us. And this, this didn't work very well, but I think that in the 21st century, we'll see a second wave of, of these techno-religions. Now, if you don't like the term religion, you can, you can just use ideology instead, but I think there is not, no essential difference between ideology and religion. Uh, they both fulfill the same function in history uh, to give legitimacy to human institutions, and to human norms and values. 
Um, whether there is a God involved or not is really far less important than the historical function because in the end, it's not God that makes religions, it's humans that make religion. The dividing line for me, usually between religion and another kind of ideology, like a, a political one, is at the line between the natural and the supernatural. So when you're, when you're positing the existence of invisible agents for which you have no real evidence, or you're making claims about the validity of prophecy, you know, the Messiah is going to return, mm-hmm. or you're making claims about the survival of consciousness after death based on precious little evidence, that's where I think it's obviously a religious enterprise and you have superstition and otherworldliness creeping in. But again, there's no very clear line there. And when you talk about something like what the, the personality cult in North Korea at the moment, obviously it has many of the features of a religion, certainly the socially consequential ones. And then you have something like you know, the, the singularity phenomenon or the, the idea of the singularity in Silicon Valley as mm-hmm. propounded by somebody like Ray Kurzweil. That has many of the features of you know, otherworldliness, arguably, that a classical religion does. I mean, there, there is this expectation of immortality that you mentioned a few moments ago. And yeah, I, I agree that the boundaries here are somewhat fungible. But when you think of the birth of a technology-inspired religion, is the notion of the singularity something that, that answers to that description already, or are you thinking about something else? Definitely. That's probably the best example we have today. I think like the singularitarians may deserve the title you know, of the, of the first Silicon Valley techno-religion. Mm. But as the technology matures and delivers more and more achievements and power, I think we'll see more and more of that. Uh, especially because, you know, again, in contrast to ancient religions like Christianity or the religion of ancient Egypt, when you needed to postpone most of your desires to the afterlife, the immense attraction of, of the new technologies is that they promise to fulfill all these miracles here, here, and, here and now, in this very life on Earth. Now, whether they manage to, to do it or not, it's a different question, of course. But the temptation is, I think, immense. The difference here, it really does strike me as a difference, is that the technology that promises this kind of rapturous fulfillment of all human desire exists to a considerable degree even now, and we are noticing it while it creates these benefits, the benefits of of intelligent technology and automation, it is creating the very harms that will make people more and more desperate to find something to anchor them, take automation as the, the narrow case. The consequences of automation, I think, unarguably at this point, will be a kind of relentless loss of the need for human labor, right? There are jobs that will go away that will never be replaced. And in the limit, when you get perfect automation and perfect AI, we have a total change of of just the purpose of human life. People will not be able to find their meaning anymore in work because there is no need for human work in the same way that there's, there's virtually no need for horses to work now. And if you gave me a horse, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I mean, if you gave me a free horse, you would just be 
imposing a cost on me, right? Whereas a century ago, there were, I think, 28 million horses working in the U.S., and they were indispensable. So if you buy the fact that we are moving towards something like, in the best case, I mean, this is, this is to be desired, and this is, this is a matter of success. You know, if, if we don't destroy ourselves with technology, we will be putting ourselves out of a job. Then the, the challenges of wealth inequality and, and you know, how to spread this wealth around and, and developing the, the political and ethical norms that will get people to want to do that, that's a, a huge challenge. And you'll have vast numbers of people who are looking for meaning in their lives. And you know, obviously, it's, that's a problem now. It's, it's been a problem for thousands of years. But it's a problem that most people haven't had to confront very directly because the burden has been on them to spend most of their lives working. And that's something that seems to be going away. Again, if we succeed, if it doesn't go away, it means we have created some chaos for ourselves that will will be intolerable for other reasons. So tell me about your views on wealth inequality here and the implications of automation and artificial intelligence for the future. I'll, I'll speak first about inequality and then about the problem of meaning, which I think is, is the deepest problem. Um, with inequality, the danger, as you say, is that automation and the rise of AI will create the most unequal society that ever existed. Because more and more people will be pushed out of the job market to join a new class, uh, the useless class, People who are not just unemployed, but unemployable. There is nothing to do with them. And we already see it in the military that uh, in the 20th century, the best armies recruited millions of everybody, basically, they could get. Today, most humans are militarily useless. There is nothing to do with them in the army. The army rely on small numbers of highly professional soldiers, these super warriors like the special elite, uh, special forces, and increasingly on sophisticated technology, like drones and then cyber warfare and, and things like that. And if the same thing happens in the economy, then you will have, we will have a massive new useless class. Now, people often say that new jobs will emerge to replace the old jobs, just as happened in previous waves of automation. But I think we cannot be so sure that the same thing will happen again for several reasons. Uh, first of all, humans have basically two kinds of abilities we know about, physical and cognitive. And traditionally or previously in the 20th century, machines competed with us in physical abilities. So humans moved to working more and more in jobs that require cognitive abilities. But once machines compete with us also in cognitive abilities, we don't know of a third field that everybody can move to working in that. The other problem is that previously when you had automation, so people moved from working in low-skilled jobs to working in new low-skilled jobs. Like if you lost your job as a farm worker in 1900, then you moved to Detroit and start working as a, as a factory hand uh, producing tractors or automobiles. Mm. Uh, and this was relatively easy because the new jobs was low skill. Then when you lost your job in the factory uh, because of automation or because production moved to China or whatever, then you find a new job working as a cashier at Walmart 
which is again a low-skilled job, so it was relatively easy. But if you look to the future, what we see is that low-skilled jobs, say at Walmart, will disappear, and people say, yes, but we'll have new jobs because we'll need a lot of software engineers to create virtual realities or, or AI or whatever, but I don't see any way in which an unemployed cashier from Walmart is suddenly becoming a software engineer in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it demands a shift from low skill to high skill, and this is just not feasible in most cases. Um, so the potential is really for creating immense gaps between a tiny elite which will benefit from the automation and most people who might lose their economic and also their political power. And um, there are all kinds of ideas what to do about it, like universal basic income, but mm. I don't think that any of the models uh, so far created really provide an answer. I, don't be I think that universal basic income is maybe a step in the right direction, but it's a half-baked idea because it doesn't really confront it doesn't really explain what universal is and what basic is. And it also, it opens us directly to the problem that was bundled in that question of meaning. So you, you have most people deriving whatever meaning they get in life, at least in significant part, from doing work they sort of enjoy. Yeah. So you, you have to, I mean, apart from the incentive problems, you, I mean, we want to incentivize people insofar as incentives still matter appropriately. But in the most utopian case, if we develop the perfect labor-saving technology and just cancel any need for human drudgery going forward, and then we develop the ethical and political and economic wherewithal to share the wealth to the perfect degree, whatever that is, answering your questions about what is universal and what is basic, and then people are free to live as creatively and beautifully and organize themselves in any way that they want, you're then left with the problem of what does the average homo sapien mind do with so much leisure? And how do you find meaning in that context? Do you, do you see that as a, an easy problem to solve? Or is it, is it something that is going to give rise to new pathologies and conflicts of a sort that we can scarcely imagine? I think it's going to be a very difficult problem and a very interesting problem. I don't think it's, it's, in so, it's, it's impossible to solve it, but it's, it's a very serious challenge. Um, everything we've so far seen in history indicates that most people will not know what to do with this kind of freedom and leisure. Uh, one option that some experts uh, point is that uh, people will just spend more and more time in virtual reality games, uh, three-dimensional virtual worlds, which will provide them with far more excitement and meaning than anything in the real world, mm. um, which is one possibility. Uh, in a way, again, it's not completely new because you can say that for thousands of years, most people found meaning in playing virtual reality games, which we just called religions. Uh, religion is a, is a huge virtual reality game. You invent certain rules that exist only in your imagination, 
like you must pray five times a day, you shouldn't eat pork, uh, two men shouldn't have sex with one another, and so forth. These laws exist only in our imagination. And you go through life and you try to gain points. I mean, you, you pray for five times a day, you gain points, uh, you have sex with another man, you lose points. If by the time you die, you have enough points, then you get uh, to the next level, supposedly. And millions of people for thousands of years have found meaning in playing this huge virtual reality game. Um, so this could continue in a different way also in the future. I think the really deep problem with the question of meaning has to do with the uh, structure of the human mind that Homo sapiens is a storytelling animal. We think in stories, we expect reality to be a story, and we expect the meaning of life also to be a story. When people ask what is the meaning of life, they almost always expect this, the answer to come in the shape of a story. Some huge cosmic drama with a beginning and middle and end and heroes and villains and so forth. And very important, with a role for me to play in the drama, in the big story. And I think the, the problem is that reality doesn't come in the shape of a story. I think as a kind of, of, a, of a, a rule of thumb, if the meaning of life that you think you have found is in the shape of a story, it's wrong. It's a human invention. Um, and how to overcome that, I don't think we are anywhere near uh, knowing the answer to that one. It's interesting there because, and I noticed at one point in your book, you said something a little skeptical about my conception of the moral landscape, the idea that there can be right answers to questions of good and evil or right and wrong or human values. But I, I see it as very much of a piece with what you just expressed there, the idea that the meaning of life is not a matter of having the right story about it. And even if you get rid of all stories or, or admit that all stories don't have really deep roots in reality, there still is just the fact that we live in a universe where certain experiences are possible and we are navigating in this space and we're navigating without a map or without a, or with a, a very primitive map and whatever our stories and their utility there still is a difference between excruciating and pointless misery and far more sublime and desirable states of consciousness again Whatever stories we tell ourselves, or whether we tell ourselves any, we must navigate. We have no choice but to navigate. We keep moving toward things that are painful. And sometimes these pains lead to better things on the other side, and we're surprised that, that the pain had a purpose. And sometimes it's just getting worse and worse, and we know we want to move in another direction, whether individually or collectively. And so we have this navigation problem. And the possibilities there that await us are absolutely the result of however reality is. And if we can integrate our minds with technology that allows us to, as you say, fudge this, this boundary between fiction and fact, and we can live in a kind of Aldous Huxley dystopia or utopia, depending on how you look at it, where 
everyone is lost in his own dream world of virtual reality or some other thing that is just the product of the human imagination, well, then we may not be at base level reality anymore, but we're still partaking of states of consciousness that are possible. And our, our exploration in those domains is, again, constrained by what is possible. And so I see us as navigating in this space, and things can go wonderfully right or disastrously wrong based on how it is certain experiences become possible. Do you agree with that, or is, or is there some way in which you, you're not converging with me there? No, I, I think I, I agree. I mean, certainly suffering is real. I mean, sometimes misery and suffering and pain are caused by some story in which people believe, but it doesn't matter. The suffering itself is real. Um, I would say that if you really want to explore reality, the best place to start is with suffering because it's the most real thing in the world. Uh, you know, with happiness, it's very difficult to tell whether, you know, you're, many times people tell themselves, oh, I'm very happy, and actually they are not. Uh, they are deluding themselves. Um, and th that's, that's difficult, but with suffering, it's, it's usually much easier to know. So, yes, this is definitely real. Although even there, suffering is amenable to being reconstrued based on the conceptual frame you put around it. So when, if you've ever engaged in a, in a very intense athletic event, say, or, you, or you know, people who have trained to be the, the kinds of elite soldiers you just referenced, you know, Navy SEALs, they go through something like a physical hell. If you imposed that training on some unsuspecting person against his will, you would be guilty of torturing them, right? And yet people willingly do this because they have a goal that they're in touch with and they, they want to get to the other side of this physical ordeal. It's not viewed as torture. And in fact, when they look back on it, it's some of the most positive experience they've had, even though if you could sample their moment-to-moment -moment experience while enduring it, they were in agony. As you must know from meditation, there are experiences of extraordinarily intense sensation when you're sitting for hours with you know, a pain in your knee, for instance, where it becomes genuinely difficult to tell whether what you're experiencing is agony or ecstasy. It's just it's sheer intensity. If you have a true equanimity of attention at that moment, the difference almost doesn't matter. So that's, there is something paradoxical even about suffering when you, when you really pay attention to it. Yes, definitely. Suffering, it's, it's, it's also a very complex matter. I would say that suffering certainly isn't pain. Uh, suffering is generated by the mind. It's the reaction of the mind uh, that is suffering. Right. It's not the objective condition in the outside world. It's not even the sensations in the body. Uh, in the body, you can have pain, you can have pressure, you can have heat. This is not suffering. The suffering is the, the, the reaction of the mind. The mind, for some reason, it doesn't matter what the reason is, for some reason, the mind doesn't like something and reacts by generating suffering, by trying to push it away, by hating this, this thing. Yeah. And this is the suffering, the reaction of the mind. Um, and and it's, it's not easy to see it, of course. But, uh, and, and therefore also, just like just as happiness is not obvious what it is, so also with suffering, it's not obvious what it is. 
But in the end, this is the most real thing in the world. Well, that's a fascinating claim because given that it's vulnerable to inspection in the way that we've described, given that there is an illusory component to suffering, in fact, it's, it, once you realize that it is at the level of a story as opposed to at the level of the raw, painful sensation, it is somewhat paradoxical to say that it's the most real thing in the world. It's, it's certainly real in terms of its motivational consequences. People are, again, going to war or just initiating the great sweeps of history based on what they want out of life and being driven by the, by the goad of suffering in one direction or another. But the person who is just told that you know the pile of paper in his bag worth a million dollars just went up in flames and he begins to suffer over it, it's odd to describe that principle as the, the most real thing in the world. For that person, at that moment, the intense misery he experiences, this is the most real thing in the world. Now, the cause of the misery may be an illusion or several illusions stuck one, one on top of the other. Mm. But the actual experience for that person at that moment, this is the, the reality for him. Yeah. And, you know, in, in Western philosophy, you see it very, very clearly, I think, with Descartes, that he goes on this expedition of, of doubting the whole world. And how do I know, I like the Matrix, how do I know that the trees and then the sky and the other people, how do I know that anything really exists? And how can I trust anything? And in the end, he comes to the point when the only thing he can, he can trust is his own momentary mental state. Uh, his very doubt, the, the, the thought, is the only thing he can trust. And then, of course, he makes a terrible mistake. He says, I think, therefore I am. Mm. And he invents the I out of nowhere. He should have said, there is thought, therefore there is thought. But no, because I think of the Christian tradition, he couldn't get rid of it. And he invented a self, an I, that thinks the thought. And once he began inventing, very quickly, he also somehow managed to, to invent God and bring him into the picture and, and so forth and so on. Yeah. But if you go with the radical doubt of Descartes, then you see that the only thing you cannot doubt is your own momentary mental state right now. In this sense, this is the most real thing in the world. The phrase I've used on this podcast and elsewhere is that consciousness is the one thing in this universe that cannot be an illusion. Because exactly. even if you're radically confused about everything, even if you're not at, at the base layer of reality and you're in the hard drive of some alien supercomputer and confused about everything, you know, this is the modern equivalent of being a brain in a vat, you still can't deny that something seems to be happening, and that seeming is as much a demonstration of consciousness as anything else. Yeah, exactly. So let's say a little more about the implications of our being able to engineer new conscious experiences, exploring experiences that no human being has ever had before. One interesting implication for me here is that the moment you begin talking about changing the human mind, now, whether this is you know, changing the brain directly or changing it by virtue of its integration with, with technology or new, far more targeted drugs than anything that exists, 
you're talking about an ability to change human intuitions about value. You could change our more our sense of good and evil. You could change our desire for certain experiences. If you don't like escargot, I could give you the right neural implant that would cause you to like it. And then you have to ask yourself, do you want to be the kind of person who likes escargot, right? And so you get this loss of foundation where, you know, all of our values are now no longer anchored to anything that, you know, evolution has prepared for us. I mean, we're not, we're no longer just apes who are disgusted by predictable things. We can change our likes and our disgusts. And then the question is, what should we do given that power? Many people worry that this would mean that therefore all truth and all value would be purely relative there. But from my point of view, that's not the case. You can still ask the further question whether changing our sense of right and wrong or good and evil on a, on a certain point is itself good, which is to say, is it moving toward better, more sublime, more durable, more creative, more beautiful conscious states, or is it moving elsewhere? I think that the, the, the first and basic realization that is part of what you're saying is that there is an entire ocean of consciousness, of potential conscious mental states out there that we know nothing about, mm. which was a very common understanding in many, if not most, cultures in history, but which disappeared from modern, modern Western culture. Um, in modern Western culture, the assumption is that the mental experiences of the average person is basically all there is and all there ever will be, or it's the apex of, of reality, of, of, of the potential. And uh, to the degree that even the most obvious extensions, animal consciousness has been denied. No, animals don't have consciousness, they don't have minds. You you only have basically one tiny island of consciousness, which is the mental states of modern people. And this is probably nonsense. I mean, the universe, uh, just, as, just as it would be ridiculous to say that the only possible configuration of matter is the human body, it is ridiculous to say that the only possible configuration of mind is the mind of middle-class Americans in the early 21st century. But this is basically what we have been saying for, for, for quite a long time. And there is an entire ocean of consciousness, of mental states out there that we know nothing about. Some of them uh, have existed before in other animals, but many of them never existing in any animal, but they are still part of the possible spectrum of mental states. Right. And it is likely that in the coming decades or centuries, we will start exploring this ocean of consciousness like the European discoverers in the 14th and 15th centuries that are starting to explore the oceans of, of, of planet Earth. Just to clarify there, you, you're not claiming that these conscious states or that this mind exists already and that we will somehow unite with it. You're claiming that there is a larger set of possible conscious experience that yes, we can navigate think, in, given the, the requisite changes to our minds. 
Exactly. If you think about, I don't know, the evolution from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, yeah. then we assume Homo sapiens has all kinds of mental experiences which no Homo erectus ever had. Um, and maybe it's because we have a different brain structure. Maybe it's because of the interaction between brain structure and culture. For, for whatever reason, still we assume that once in the age of Homo erectus, many of the mental experiences we have today didn't exist. But they were part of the, of the potential spectrum of, of mind. And eventually they were realized mm. through the evolution of Homo sapiens. And in a similar way, looking to the future, there might be all kinds of other mental states out there, never realized before by any organism, but that could be realized either by some other kind of organism, like a superhuman or whatever, or maybe by a cyborg or by a non-organic being. Uh, this is also a possibility. Now, of course, you have the question of value whether uh, one mental state is better than another mental state. And I think that the obvious answer is yes. Uh, we all the time make evaluations of comparing different mental states. I mean, what we do throughout our lives is to pursue some mental states and run away from others. Again, we think we are pursuing objectives in the outside world, like we want a lot of money, we want a good job, we want to find love. But all these things, at bottom, they are particular mental states that we prefer to other mental states. Yeah. How much do you think we should value reality over fiction? Again, realizing that this boundary is porous, but its porousness is going to force this issue upon us in ways that you've intimated. So, for instance, if we can spend more and more time in virtual worlds, which become less and less distinguishable from the real world. You know, there are, our video games get so good that even someone now who's not even tempted to play video games will one day find them to be the, the most enthralling and, and ultimately only art form worth paying attention to. And let's say you begin to feel in relationship to these products of human imagination. But, of course, you're not really in relationship unless the, the characters in the games become conscious themselves. It seems to me that there's two very different possibilities here. You can be, and you know, one of them is, is very reminiscent of something like an, an Aldous Huxley dystopia. The world becomes shattered by people's uses of attention in these private spheres of creative imagination. So all of us spend hours a day lost in these dream worlds, you know, essentially video games. To some degree, we already do that, obviously. We, we read novels, we listen to the voice in our heads, you know, every minute of the day. The world is already shattered into these private uses of attention, where we're really not connecting with other real conscious beings or, or the world itself, you know, while we're lost in these dreamscapes. But it seems to me that this technology could take this in a direction that is very Matrix-like, and maybe this just brands me as a, a very provincial person, but it seems on its face terrifying and worth avoiding to have us all point our minds into a kind of imaginative solitude, 
more and more, no matter how captivating that can be made to seem. Do you have that same bias that somehow we want an integrated reality where we're really in relationship rather than a, a dreamscape, however pleasant? Well, you could have a dreamscape in which many people interact. So you still yeah. suspend the laws of physics and so forth, but you have other consciousnesses, other minds out there to interact with them. And I guess that, at least in for the foreseeable future, to be really fun and really exciting, you would need the other minds in the game with you. Uh, you know, which is the entire secret of success of social networks and of games like Minecraft and, uh, and Pokemon and things like that. But, you know, as I said before, the idea of turning attention to a dream world and getting your meaning of life from there, there is nothing really new about it. About it. The form yeah. is new, but the idea is old. Uh, again, religion is the best example of how humans have been doing it for thousands of years. I would say that the, the, for me, the, the really big danger in enclosing yourself within this kind of virtual realities that makes your dreams come true. The problem is that at the very deep level, the reaction of the human mind to pleasure isn't satisfaction, it's craving for more. Mm. And so even if you create extremely pleasant worlds, people will just want more and more. And um, they, I don't think they will be satisfied. And it will become, you know, it's like addiction. Yeah. Well, the problem is, you know, addiction to drugs. So for, at, at present, the, the state doesn't like addiction to drugs because it harms your productivity and your ability to perform as, as a good citizen. But if the state doesn't need you and you can be all day in, in some trip, then that objection is, is, is pushed to the side. But the deeper objection is that in the long run, I just don't see how it makes people satisfied um, it just makes them more and more addicted with time because you need, you know, larger and larger doses of, of this pleasant mental experience. And for me, the, the real key to, to happiness is to know the truth about yourself and about the world. I think if you really know the truth, not as a story and not as a theory, but through direct realization, you've realized what is the truth of existence, then you're really, that, that's really the, the, the firm basis for, for happiness. And you are unlikely to get that by pursuing ever more pleasant experiences in some dream world. Yeah, or, or a real one for that matter. Or a real one, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's worse with the dream world because theoretically, they could or you could increase the dosage all the time. Uh, in the real yeah. world, you, you eventually bump against some obstacle which stops this mad pursuit and gives you the opportunity to change direction. But in a dream world, you're in danger of being completely imprisoned by this constant pursuit of pleasure and excitement 
uh, without having any opportunity to um, really explore reality. When you say that you can be lost in a dream world and because of the, the endless opportunity to increase the dosage, essentially, of creativity or beauty or desire fulfillment, you may never be able to discover what is really true about the mind, which is the, the key to ending your search for satisfaction. How would you describe that truth? What is the truth that people would be in danger of never discovering in those conditions? It's the truth of, of the nature of the mind itself, and especially the truth that all these experiences and feelings and sensations, they are really just ephemeral vibrations. They have no deep meaning, and this is why they can't give you any lasting satisfaction. If you get, for a moment, some pleasant feeling, it immediately uh, disappears, and you need to, to, to grasp the next. It, it never lasts. And this is the, the essential nature of all these experiences and, and feelings and sensations. And I think only once you begin to realize that, you have a, a real chance of understanding yourself and of being really satisfied. Because otherwise, you just think that, oh, I'm missing this particular feeling, I'm missing this particular experience, this is why I'm not satisfied. If I only had it, then finally I'll be satisfied. And there is no such thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? It's a very hard lesson to learn. It's very hard in, in the outside real world, and it will be even harder in a dream world. And also, you know, part of the issue is if you really want to explore reality, and you try to explore only the pleasant uh, aspects, uh, you're not really exploring reality. You're just running away from something. I know your time is short, Yuval. I, w I just want to bring it back down to Earth with a final question of increasing political and social import. Mm -hmm. It comes back to the issue of globalism and that's really the, the political moment, the way we are beginning to see globalism become, at least in America, I guess America and in Western Europe now, it's, it's a derogatory term, and we're witnessing a kind of collapse into nationalism and a populist attitude that claims or pretends to want nothing to do with globalism. I know you're someone who thinks that the end game for civilization is to get towards something like a, a world government. I'm wondering how you view the possibility of progress in that direction, given recent events in the last 12 months or so, and, and how you view the most likely utopian or dystopian outcomes for us in the 21st century in light of all that? Well, there is first the question of need, and then there is the question of possibility of a global community or global identity. Um, in terms of need, I, I think it's really essential because all the major problems humankind will face in the 21st century will be global problems that simply cannot be solved on a national basis. The traditional criticism of nationalism was that nationalism leads to conflict and war and so forth. And this is still true, but I think the real objection to nationalist worldview today 
is that nationalism prevents us from solving the major problems, which are climate change, uh, global inequality, the threat of nuclear war, and the threat of disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. It's obvious that with climate change, no single nation can solve the problem by itself, which is why nationalists tend to just deny the problem. At first sight, it seems strange that almost all the people who deny climate change are also from the nationalist right. I mean, what's the connection? Why don't you have left-wing socialists denying climate change? But the, the answer, I think it's obvious that there is no nationalist answer to climate change. So as, a, as, a, as an extreme nationalist, you just have to deny the problem. But the problem is real. And unless we have a global effort, then we will face an, a, a, a real ecological catastrophe in, in the coming decades. Similarly, if you think about nuclear war, this is a, an old lesson that humans have learned in the last 50 or 60 years. The only way to prevent global, uh, nuclear war is through global cooperation. It's not something that a single country can do by itself. Mm. And this is also true of technological disruption. If you think about the dangerous potential of bioengineering and artificial intelligence, regulation on a national basis is not going to help us. If the United States, say, regulates uh, or decides to stop all genetic experiments on human beings or decides not to give artificial intelligence control of weapons or something like that, it's not going to help if China or North Korea continue to do it, especially because these are high-risk, high-gain technologies and nobody would like to stay behind. If the Chinese are doing it and they gain some crucial advantage because of that, then the US will break its own ban because it wouldn't like to stay behind. The only serious way to prevent the worst outcomes is through global regulation. Um, so this is why I think we now need uh, maybe not a global government, but global governance, a global mm. cooperation. I just don't see what could be the nationalist answer to climate change or nuclear war or disruptive technology. Now, this is, this is about the need. About the possibility, it's a different question because humans don't always make the best decisions. Uh, human stupidity has been one of the most powerful forces in history. It's not the only force, there is also human wisdom. I mean, sometimes humans do the right thing. If you look at, again, at nuclear weapons, so in the 1950s, many people were convinced that sooner or later, the Cold War will, will end in a nuclear war, which will destroy human civilization. And it didn't happen because the Americans and Soviets and Chinese and Europeans, they managed to cooperate enough uh, to prevent uh, this cat catastrophe. So there is, there is hope. I'm not saying it's hopeless, but uh, as I said, you should never underestimate human stupidity. Um, at present, I think things are not so bad. I mean, they are going in a, in a negative direction, but we are still in a far better position 
than, let's say, a century ago. If you remember where humankind was in 1917, then we are still in a relatively good place mm-hmm. in terms of global cooperation. But um, we are on the edge of a very, very deep chasm. And the way down can be maybe very long, but you, we can, you can cover it very, very fast. So I hope that humans will uh, cooperate in their best interests. I mean, if it's every country to itself, I don't think we can, we can uh, uh, solve these existential problems. Do you think we need a story above and beyond the story you just told in your answer to this question? about the necessity of global cooperation to facilitate that cooperation? Is it enough to articulate the global nature of all these problems and their imminence widely enough and credibly enough again and again? Or do we need some other kind of story to motivate people to cooperate? Um, I would tend to say that we need also a good story, a better story. Part of the problem with this explanation It's too abstract, and um, it's very difficult to get people together unless you have an emotional enemy. Mm. Uh, You could say that climate change is an enemy, and uh, disruptive technology is an enemy, but these are very abstract enemies. Most people, uh, you cannot motivate them. You cannot harness their emotions unless you have a more... Uh, human-like enemy. This is why, you know, in in Hollywood movies, even if you make a movie about climate change, you have to have some evil person to serve as the bad guy without which there is no movie. And I don't have a story to offer, uh, but my guess is that uh, we will need a powerful story um, to get people together. Yes, we need those aliens from outer space to actually attack us. <laughs> Quickly solve that, all our problems. That could be a, a good story, yeah. Well, listen, Yuval, it's really been great to talk to you. We could go on for literally hours and hours, and perhaps we'll get a chance to do it again sometime in person, because yeah, it would be great. Yeah, I like to. Did you ever visit Israel by any chance? It's been a while. I, I, I've gone there a couple of times, but it's, it's been almost a decade, I think, since I've been there. Well, it's changed a lot in the last decade. Uh, if you come, I will be very happy to host you here. And if not, then, then maybe next time in the United States. Wonderful. Yeah, that would, that would be great. Is there any place online that you want to direct listeners to find out more about you, to your website? or? Uh, yes, I, I have a website. It's uh, ynharari.com. Uh, and if you just search my name in Google, I think it's the first thing that comes up is, is my website. That's as it should be. Uh, <laughs> they got that part right. Uh, probably. I uh, know I don't have Twitter and uh, I don't have a smartphone even, so I can't tweet. So. Oh, hence your sanity. That's amazing. Yeah, probably. There's a lot to envy in your uh, particular live stream at the moment. Okay, well, listen, until we next cross paths, get to work on that story that's going to save humanity from itself. I'll do my best. It's been wonderful, and um, I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing. Uh, to you too. Take care, Yuval. You too. Bye-bye.